Welcome to Dispatch Live. I'm David French. I'm joined today with the one and only General Goldberg, Adam O'Neill, who you met last week, I believe. So we're not just we're not even going to mention who he is anymore. We're going to presume that you know already. And of course, Klon Kitchen. We're going to talk about uh, Ukraine. What's going on in Ukraine? It's the biggest story in the world right now. Um, it. Uh, arguably, these last few days are amongst the mo- among the most consequential military developments since the Russian attack on and reti- retreat from Kiev. I still want to say Kiev, but uh, Kiev. So let's let without further ado, let let's walk through what's happening and let's walk through what's happening as best as we can tell through the fog of war in Ukraine. And let's also walk through what's happening here in the United States in the debate about Ukraine, which is very live as we speak. So Adam, let, let's just start with you. Uh, you were telling me earlier, you've been talking to Pentagon sources, you've been looking at what's happening and we don't need to know which rail crossings are contested right now. Uh, we don't need to know which villages have fallen in the last six to seven hours. What are the, but what are the broad brushstrokes of what's been transpiring in Ukraine, especially the Northeastern part of the country? Right. If you haven't been following the war and you fell out of touch a few months ago, you might have seen the Russians were slowly advancing after they pulled back from attacking the capital. And now the uh, the, the movement is headed in the opposite direction. A couple of weeks ago or earlier this month, there was a offensive beginning in the country south. Russians were sending a lot of troops and equipment there. And uh, more recently in the north around Kharkiv, in addition to the uh, fog of war, you'll have to do with you'll have to deal with me mispronouncing all these uh, town names. I've been visiting and writing the country for years, and I've still never quite nailed it down. But the big shock, and what uh, someone I was talking to who's talking to me from the Pentagon parking lot before he went into work this morning was the the big shock was not just that the Ukrainians attacked Kharkiv, which was somewhat expected, although they were trying to put most of the attention on their movements in the south, but just how far they've gone. Since the offensive began earlier this month, you're looking at something like 3,500 square miles of the country. And if you've ever had to take a train across Ukraine, you realize 3,500 square miles is not a ton of land. Right. Uh, country that The biggest country in Europe, if you don't count Russia, but it's still a tremendous amount of land for a military to take in a matter of, of days. And the other thing that shocked um, this person who I was speaking to has been following Ukraine for years and very closely following the war since since before February and you know since the end of last year when when this began was how much gear the Russians left behind. Mm. Russian state media is talking about how this is a regrouping and they're focusing on the east, but you don't leave behind that many tanks, that many rounds of artillery, that many artillery pieces, just that much expensive, deadly equipment if you're strategically regrouping. The Russians are running and to put this in perspective, the Ukrainians have only taken about 10% of the land that they lost since this war was renewed in February. But that's essentially the state of play. And the question, and Klon can get into this about what this means for the future of the war and where this is headed, that's very much debatable. But there's been the, the progress has been slowing. You can't do that forever, otherwise they'd right. be at Moscow in you know a month. But the uh, but there's still some steady progress, and we're about to reach the point where the Russians are able to dig in again and actually fight instead of just run. And that's why that's why is as encouraging this is for people who support Ukrainian democracy. We can't get overly excited and expect the war to be over and by Christmas or anything like that. Right. I mean, and just as a matter of training and equipment and capability, this is not a military that has the ability to do a hundreds mile long armored thrust. Um, in the same way, say that the United States does or it does now and did in previous wars. Um, Klan, I, I want to go to you on sort of what this all means. And I'm going to start with something that caught my eye. And I, one thing that I would recommend listeners do or, or viewers do, if you don't, is it would be worth it to start following the Ministry of Defense Twitter account for the United Kingdom. And that would be Ministry of Defense with defense misspelled, of course, D-E-F-E-N-C-E. And they do a, a, a update every evening. And here, let me read to you from the update, um, because I think it's a good starting point about what this means. Uh, three bullet points. Elements of the Russian forces withdrawn from the Kharkiv blast, if, if I'm, and please, again, forgive me if I am 
mispronouncing stuff over the last week were from the First Guards Tank Army, which are subordinate to the Western Military District. First Guards Tank Army suffered heavy casualties in the initial phase of the invasion and had not been fully reconstituted prior to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. First Guards Tank Army had been one of the most prestigious of Russia's armies allocated for the defense of Moscow and intended to lead counterattacks in the case of a war with NATO. With First Guards Tank Army and other formations severely degraded, Russia's conventional force designed to counter NATO is severely weakened. It will likely take years for Russia to rebuild its capability. So this is my question, Klon. If you're looking at it and you're putting on your military analyst hat, what is more consequential? Is it the lost territory or is it the lost material or is it the lost manpower? In other words, how how should we be looking at this defeat? Um, because it does plainly appear to be a defeat as of right now, a, a battlefield defeat, not an end of the war, but a battlefield defeat. What are you looking at as being truly consequential? <clears throat> uh, so it, from from the perspective of Russia, um, I, you know, it, it's it's a great question, David, but I'm sure they're feeling all of those losses simultaneously mm-hmm. in, in the sense of the loss of material, the loss of personnel and the loss of ground. Right. They're not going to separate those things out. Those all add up to a catastrophic uh, loss in you know, a matter of like three days, I think, you know, so they all the ground that they had gained since April, essentially, they lost over the course of three days, which is an amazing thing. Um, and that's huge. And, and, and it's huge, not just because of the actual, so it's a continuation of many of the, uh, particularly in terms of the, the uh, material losses, mm-hmm. um, which they're going to keep feeling. But also, I mean, like what we're learning is that from a, from a, from a pure material perspective, they, they weren't doing particularly well when they started this whole thing and, mm-hmm. you know, not nearly as good as we thought, but there's, there's this broader kind of geopolitical implication of all of this, which, you know, th- that uh, MOD update at least suggests in terms of, you know, this was a vanguard. And so mm-hmm. a, a, a tank, a, um, an army that was dedicated to the defense of Moscow how na- has just now been devastated. And and that has a very long, that's not going to be reconstituted in the short term. But I want to, so, so that's, that's one part. I want to take though, uh, my my colleague at AI, Hal Brand, so I just think is he's just one of these wicked smart guys, and he kind of does a book every week. Um, but he had he had four observations that I just don't have anything better, so I'm going to crib them because I think they're really good in terms of what all this means. You know, the first one is I think we're seeing in a very concrete way. So the Ukrainians deserve all the credit because they're the ones on the, on the field doing the fighting, without a doubt. Um, that does not deny the fact though that. What we're seeing is just how devastatingly effective U.S. intelligence and operational support can be. Like we're game planning this stuff in real time for them. We're we're moving to you know de-emphasize the high risk stuff. Kind of do a feint here. Help us you know let us help you think through this. And I think that is really really showing up in in ways that um, are impressive. Uh, two. Uh, I think politically, one of the things that Ukraine has done is it's done a, a it's gone a long way in keeping its European coalition together. You know, as winter's coming and as they're going to start feeling the bite of um, of the lack of Russian oil and other energy, uh, had Ukraine, you know, not demonstrated such an aggressive uh, success, um, they they there would have been a lot of pressure to uh, strike a back deal so that Europe could kind of get out of the pinch that it was feeling. Now I think they've got uh, they've dramatically improved their their standing to to argue for no we're going to keep our foot on the gas and keep pushing, and you guys need to stay with us. So I think that's I think that's going to be huge. Third, um, I think one of the things that this could mean is that we might start to see um, the emergence of, of divergent war aims between the United mm. States and Ukraine. Right. So Ukraine is going to see this and they're you know, reasonably and understandably going to say, let's take it all back. You know, I mean, they're feeling good. Right. They, they, they've seen success and and they're feeling their oats and, and, and they need to fight and they're going to want to get it all back. Whereas the United States is, you know, going to have more limited aims because, you know, it, our feet aren't in those boots right now. So that that's going to be something that could develop. And then finally, uh, this obviously provokes questions about Rus- Russian escalation. Right. So there's mm-hmm. reports about. Um, folks in Russia starting to, you know, at least 
complain, if not call for a change uh, as it regards Vladimir Putin. Uh, Putin, despite calling this a, a reconstitution or whatever it is he's saying, um, it's a clear loss. It's 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 an unambiguous loss. And so, you know, the conversations about how might he try to reassert himself up to and including the use of tactical nuclear weapons, that conversation's coming back again. Um, and I don't think it can be dismissed. So I think those are four big takeaways in terms of the strategic implications of what happened last weekend. All right, Jonah. Um, so in the category of uh, bad timing, <laughs> uh, it appears that a number of conservative groups right as sort of in the new right space and an old right group that's transitioning to a new right ethos heritage have announced opposition to additional aid for Ukraine. Um, the White House is seeking an additional 13 billion or so. Uh, including 11 billion that's going to be direct security energy. A heritage action has come out against it. So this is foundation cold war stalwart heritage foundation coming out against or heritage action i should be clear the conserve is sort of the political wing of heritage um heritage action heritage coming out against uh additional aid ukraine a group called concerned veterans for america russ fought who i believe is a trump admi administration alumnus who is runs this thing called center for renewing america said quote this new package will prolong a fight that lacks an American dog, allowing regional allies to shirk their security responsibilities yet again. Um, what's happening on the right? Is this something to be concerned about? And if the answer is no, why are you um, basically undermining the newsletter that I'm about to send out right now? <laughs> um so first of all, um, when you say heritage action, not heritage, it's not quite the difference between the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. It's more like the Judean People's Front and the Judean People's Front's Political Action Committee. Um, <laughs> so it's a subtle distinction. Um, so let me split the baby a little bit on this since we're talking about Judean people's fun. No, uh, since we're, you know, insofar as obviously part of it is the rising pro Putin nationalist, anti NATO, anti democratic Trump hangover ideological shifts that we're seeing all over the place. And part of it, I think, is also just rank partisanship. Mm. Um, and it is because this is one of the few things that Biden, not flawlessly, not, you know, not without room for criticism, but has mm -hmm. handled pretty well. There are enormous incentive structures on the right right now to if Biden's for it, if it's good for the Democrats, we have to be against it. I think the Quincy Institute, which is this Coke funded thing, comes by its isolationism honestly right um i think heritage is moving towards an honest position on isolationism and that breaks my heart or non-interventionism or whatever we're going to end up having to call it um uh but right now it's difficult to say how much of it is part primarily partisan motivated and how much of it is uh trump of Trump cult of personality stuff mm -hmm. and how much of his actually sincere ideological commitment to America retreating from the world. None of it is healthy, I don't think. And um, and one can fuel the other in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Um, but I have a hard time believing that it's going to translate into widespread Republican opposition to Ukrainian victories, um, <laughs> particularly when you're going to see increasing amounts of footage. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be gross about this, but we're going to get a whole new fresh wave of horrible reports of Russian atrocities. Right. I'm just sure of it. And, you know, it's sort of like Tucker Carlson three nights ago, two nights ago, was had one of his Baghdad Bob Russia experts on talking about how the Russians are losing the war. 
And it was sort of pretty clearly not true then, but it looks ridiculous now. And I don't think there are a lot of Republicans who want to be that wrong about where the, the news climate is going. Okay, we'll follow up with you before we go back around the horn. How much of this is going to matter politically? I mean, J.D. Vance says, you know, I don't care about Ukraine. Um, Tucker, he's not a political candidate, but how does it matter? When, how much does it matter in his standing on the right? I believe he had on um, his his designated Russia expert, what's his name, Douglas McGregor or whatever, um, who was giving off a lot of that Baghdad Bob energy um, saying that the entire war may be over soon. Right now, things are going very, very badly for the Ukrainians, and they're desperate. Um, this was while Russians were fleeing Kharkiv. I mean, in full headlong retreat when he was saying these things. Uh, how much is this going to kind of matter in this Republican intramural conflict that's going on? Does is this the kind of thing that the public's going to that the the GOP public is going to really track at all? I'm, I'm a. I don't know. B. Um, I think that I'm very glad that the primaries are essentially over <laughs> for this change in the news environment because, like, getting Tucker Carlson's endorsement and support during the primaries much more important than during the general election. And right. um, if this was going on, if, if we just shifted the calendar back two months and had the same sort of issue climate, I think it would be much worse for the GOP because more candidates we bought into garbage positions than they need to be now. I think, I think one of the reassuring things about this moment is the general cowardice of a lot of elected Republicans insofar as for the same reason that the smart, tolerant, fairly reasonable Republicans aren't talking about abortion because they don't want to get out ahead of the winds one way or the other. I think the same impetus is to say, look, the American people like a winner. They like an underdog. They like a hero. And Zelensky and Ukraine right now fit all of those things. Why would I get in front of that when I've already got my nomination? So I think long term, the corruption, the intellectual corruption of places like Heritage is heartbreaking to me. And uh, the rising influence of places like the Quincy Institute is heartbreaking to me. Um, the attention that the nationalists, the nat natcons get is dismaying. Um, but I, it's entirely possible. I just don't know that it just gets wiped away in the general hawkishness and patriotic nature of the your rank and file normal Republican voters. And people realize that those dogs won't hunt. I just don't know. All right, Adam, I'm going to I'm going to give you the task over here at the dispatch. We like to steal man opposing points of view. Sure. Um, make Heritage's case for them, if you can. Well, uh, I don't know if I'd want to say what Heritage's case is. I know they have a one voice policy, but for example, a, a policy manifestation would be that they oppose the aid to Ukraine, although they support Ukraine, they think it was done poorly. So while they would like a Ukrainian victory, it's not worth uh, a few billion extra dollars in spending. I mean, we already have 30 trillion, so 5 billion would be a really big problem for inflation and for the national debt. <laughs> so, so I guess I'm not gonna- Wait, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, Adam. That I'll... argument shines through, but- uh... Hold on, hold on. The definition of steel manning is not mocking straw tones. Manning. Yes. <laughs> well, it's not a straw man. No, it's not a I'm straw man, it's the mocking tone. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, they're, look, they're, so I could say, let's not, let's set heritage aside, right? Because they have their own nuanced position, which which is we support Ukraine, but we want it to be done properly. And the Biden bill sucked and it was a missed opportunity. And we're spending money on civil society when we should just send the weapons. But the idea, the, the argument against helping out Ukraine is that they cannot fundamentally win a war against Russia if Russia decides it's willing to pay the price to win the war. And that escalating against Russia would force Vladimir Putin into a position where out of his own self-interest and out of the self-interest of the ruling elite around him, they would escalate, like Klon said, 
in an unacceptable way with a tactical nuclear weapon. And that's part of Russian nuclear doctrine is using nuclear weapons as a form of intimidation when necessary. Or they would launch a mass mobilization, which would be politically risky and it would take time, but would still lead to disastrous results. And the other argument is also economic in that Putin could do quite a bit of damage to the European economy and therefore the global economy and the American economy by sending gas prices and oil prices even higher by punishing them for taking Ukraine's side too strongly. So instead, the responsible argument or the responsible strategy would be to use our leverage in Ukraine to force them to negotiate a settlement of some kind to accept that they're not getting Crimea back, they're not getting the Donbass back, but find some kind of set, uh, reasonable settlement and promises afterward to defend them. And that would be preferable to something comparable to the Iran-Iraq war, which drags out for a decade and kills a million people. I think that is the most reasonable argument against helping the Ukrainians push more towards something that looks like victory than, than um, that, that's what I would say would be the fair argument. So Klein Adam makes good, well, Adam channeling some of these <laughs> folks makes some interesting points that are a lot more interesting than a lot of the slogans we hear, like uh, when Heritage came out against the initial aid and said it puts America last, which was a slogan, not an argument. Um, what's your response to some of the points Adam just raised? No. <laughs> <laughs> Persuasive. Persuasive. Um, I'm going to log off now. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So I, I'm going to break, I'm going to break the kind of opponents into that spectrum that Jonah was describing a little bit in terms of, so you take someone like Quincy. Quincy, I would say is um, not insignificantly influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. They, they, their talking points and the political objectives of the CCP are often in, in strong alignment. Um, but they do come by their kind of isolationism coherently and consistently. They're, they're, they are consistent. Um, but then Heritage is, is kind of jumping in front of that parade right now. I think, you know, it, it's hard to assess motives, so I'll just resist that urge. But I think one of the things that um, that they're going to find is that, you know, so the argument that that Heritage and its leadership will make is, no, 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 this is, you know, Ukraine is is keeping our eye off the ball. The big target is China. And the longer we're spending and the more we're spending on Ukraine, the less we're going to be ready for uh, a conflict with China, potentially over Taiwan. Um, there's There's some merit to that. But the problem is, is that what they don't understand, what they seemingly don't understand, is that historically, people who've argued for this kind of restraint worldview, they're not going to be rah rahing for any type of activity with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're gonna they're gonna mount the exact same arguments over Taiwan in terms of this isn't our problem. Why are we picking a fight with, you know, this massive, you know, uh, what it, uh, our civilizational peer in China? Uh, you know, the, the 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 restraint worldview does not offer a cogent, compelling argument for why we would choose to act in Taiwan, but not in in Ukraine. And so I, I think what I find is and, and you and I both responded to the heritage argument when it when it was first made is that, look, we can argue. I mean, I, too, think there's a lot of waste, fraud and abuse in government spending. But the amount that we're talking about of Ukraine relative to government spending in general is a pittance. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. it's, it's not even decimal dust. Um, I, too, wish that our European allies were doing more. I wish Germany would do more than talk, uh, even though they are providing some material. But but I wish they would do more. But I'm not willing to penalize Ukraine for Germany's failure. Mm -hmm. um, and then it often begins with a false argument that this is none of our interests, that, that Ukraine is just not our problem. And that to me, and I think in the case of heritage, particularly, that comes from either ignorance or uh, just a kind of raw political cynicism that ignores what I think is becoming increasingly obvious. I mean, who Putin is and what his intentions are now are far more clear than they were back in January. I think we all understand that that if he were allowed to go uncontested, that this conflict and these problems would quickly land on NATO's front door. And then I don't care how restrained you want to be, 
you don't have a choice. Now you're in a fight and the consequences have been dramatically raised. So, um, you know, I, I, I hear these arguments. I find them less compelling as time goes on. Um, and their their rationale in the in the light of Ukrainian victories becomes um, more and more shallow, I think. And so, also, can I add one one other point? In the and maybe I missed it because some viewers may have noticed while Klon was talking, actually while Dave was talking too, while it was riveting, I was determined <laughs> to find a bottle opener on my new Leatherman. So I may have missed this point, but like. One of the other important factors in Ukraine's success is just the incredibly important role of really cool weapons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And um, the H the the HIMARS stuff was really these things were game changers. And um, the coolest little tidbit about the war so far, in terms in terms of pure military geekery was the Ukrainian government commissioned all of these artisans to make fake HIMARS installations. And because the Russians are so terrified of these things, they had two choices. They either redeployed whole formations to get out of range of fake HIMARS things, or they dropped like $15 million cruise missiles on them to take out a bunch of balsa wood. Either way, just a win-win militarily in terms of because <laughs> they're only like sixteen high, high Mars things, and like, but like the Russians can't take a chance that one of these one of these installations is real or one of these units is real, and it, it shows you the ingenuity of the Ukrainians to to multiply the value of these incredibly valuable things as they are, and the reason why I was just going to let it go, but it undermines the heritage point. If 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 you believe, and I think it's a defensible position, that the game changer for the Ukrainians was not just the intel, but this physical equipment, mm-hmm. then that's the argument. If you say you're theoretically in favor of Ukraine winning, well, and, and it's the actual weapon systems that we send that make that possible. And I think we've now had the demonstration effect. It makes this parsing, mincing sort of rhetorical uh, difference splitting kind of position that some of these guys are taking all the more indefensible because it's actually the physical aid that is a major explanation for how Ukraine might actually be able to win this thing. Can I just double click on that real quick? So one of the key arguments that has been made previously is uh, by heritage particularly is that and there's so much fraud and abuse in Ukraine that 80% of the stuff we're sending them isn't making it to the battlefield, right? That's been a key argument that they've been mounting. And I don't think that argument holds any water when you consider the success of what Ukraine has been able to do. That is an obvious demonstration of material landing on the front lines and having the effect that Jonah was just describing. Well, look at this. I can multitask. Everyone just got in their inbox a scintillating email about Ukraine, uh, but I'd urge you not to read it while we're talking about it. Um, so here, here's something that I think, um, and and let's stick with the um, the equipment aspect and sort of expand from that. Two things. One, I think that's happening here is that we're seeing and our enemies are seeing a demonstration of the unbelievable capabilities of our weapon systems. Like this is something reminds me of Desert Storm 1 when you know, Iraq wasn't wasn't equipped with all of the Soviet's Soviet Union's frontline equipment, but it had a lot of Soviet equipment and it just wasn't any match for what we had. And I, I think it maybe even surprised American defense planners how much of an advantage we actually had. And here you're seeing uh, what a tremendous game changer some of our weapons are against the best the Russians have to offer. The other thing is, let me just talk for a minute about numbers. Klein, you said something really interesting, which was, um, what do you call it, decimal dust when you're talking about the overall... Well, Let's put this in some perspective here. So if you're looking at, we, we've had a $40 billion package. We're wanting to go with another $11 billion package. That's a lot of money. All right, in 2016, but if you look at the American defense buildup, in 2016, 
our our defense budget was about 640 billion a year. By the end of the Trump administration, it was getting close to 800 billion. I don't begrudge any of that spending. I think it was necessary as one aspect of Trump policies that I supported were the Trump defense budget increases. But why were we pumping that much money into national defense while the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were winding down? One of the reasons is not because we're trying to create the, the world's most expensive jobs program. One of the reasons is the our chief adversaries, Russia and China, were perceived to be modernizing and closing the quantity and quality gap um, with American force. And so modernization for a fundamental degradation of the Russian military machine. memory. And I think I'm making good points as I'm glitching out, unfortunately. But the basic point is compared to what we're spending on American on American deterrence, um, the amount we're spending to degrade one of our chief adversaries' militaries is one of the, you know, it's one of the more cost-effective foreign policy in initiatives in recent history. Okay, that's not a question. That was just me. <laughs> All right. I, let's go to some questions. Let's go to some questions. All right. Um, all right. All right. This is a good one. If Can Ukraine really actually win? And if it looks like they're on the verge of actually winning, which I would take as pushing Russia out of Ukraine entirely, what? how does Russia escalate? Does Russia permit that to happen? Um, Let's start with Adam on that. I was having a conversation with a Ukrainian who advises the defense ministry last week before these major gains occurred, but as they were having some small victories in Kherson. And there was sort of a weird paradox in the conversation where he was saying, we're very confident, we're very willing to fight, we can make some gains, but we can't win without tanks and airplanes. We can't win without more equipment. And we are very grateful for the HIMARS. We're very grateful for the Javelins. We've enjoyed blowing up tanks. Uh, the Stingers, have been, it's been very fun to watch videos of helicopters blowing up in the air. But we don't have the equipment or the ability to really, truly take back every inch of territory, setting aside how Vladimir Putin escalates. That is a concern that the Ukrainians still have. And despite their massive successes in the north, I think that's still very much on their minds and something they're going to be trying to capitalize on when talking to European as well as American officials and trying to get more support by saying, look, we took a humongous beating over the past six months, but if you can keep the materiel coming before the Russians are able to regroup and attack us again, we can take even more. There's uh, My sense now is that it's possible with the equipment that they have, and it's utterly impossible to predict for sure, but it's entirely feasible that the Ukrainians could go back to where they were on February 23rd, the day before Russian tanks started rolling in in different parts of the country. And that is now I'll tell you this from talking to Ukrainians for years. Nobody was happy with that status quo. Zelensky ran and he won with something like 75 percent in 2019 on a promise to restore all of their territory. And that includes Crimea. That's not going to happen as the Ukrainian army is currently constituted and as even despite all their morale and even if they somehow scrounged up even more soldiers to fight from them, that would be impossible absent a Western intervention of some kind to help them out. But if they could get back to where they were six months ago with Russia so much more poor and isolated from the country or from, from the rest of the world, that could be construed as a victory of some kind and it's certainly plausible. All right, Jonah, 57 House Republicans voted against Ukraine aid last time. Um, not a majority of the caucus, but a significant number nonetheless. Um, is there a way that Democrats could use this GOP opposition against aid to Ukraine in a way similar that to the way that Republicans use defund the police against Democrats? This was a position not taken really all that many Democratic office holders 
if any, but was seen as sort of the position of the vanguard of the left. Um, if abandoning Ukraine is a position of the van perceived vanguard of the right or is hung around the right, could it have general election consequences? I think it, uh, I can have general election consequences to be sure. I don't know that it can be the equivalent of defund the police. Right. Um, I mean, I know I'm, um, it's like I'm running around screaming it's a cookbook on this, but like <laughs> the, the, the polling on defund the police was always so bad for defund the police, <laughs> right? I mean, like literally no one really polled, should we defund the police? What they polled was, should we have, do, would you like to have more, less, or the same amount of policing in your community? And something like 82% of Americans said they wanted the same or more. And like 20% said less. Less is a lot different than zero, right? Like it's, it's the, the Ukraine stuff is just more complicated. It's far away. It doesn't mm -hmm. affect people's lives in the same way. Like you ask someone, would you like it if there were just simply no police in your neighborhood? <laughs> and they're like, I can see, I can foresee the bad consequences of that very easily in my own life. You ask people, would you like to see Ukraine win or lose or regain territory or whatever? And they're like, it's much more abstract. And so which is not to say, look, America loves underdogs. And this is the thing that drives me crazy about putting America last, this talking point about giving money to Ukraine. It's like, e even if you could make the argument, which I wouldn't buy, that this was totally not in our interest, it's not like we're putting Burkina Faso and Sri Lanka ahead of America's interest by giving money to Ukraine. It's just simply doing something that's needed in a in a specific moment that we think is important. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, this is the other part of the problem, is I think Republicans generally are more pro-military. They're more into the idea of American interests winning through military means. I'm not saying that they're more patriotic and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we can have those arguments later. The left doesn't like military engagements as a general aesthetic way and in, in, in an aesthetic way that the right tends to. And so even a stirring, stunning victory for Ukraine, I don't think moves lots of left of center voters the way it will shame lots of right of center voters. And so it just makes it a much more muddled kind of question than some sort of like, you know, Latin X or defund the police, something that clearly just is terrible for your own side kind of thing. All right, uh, Klon, this is a question that's got you written all over it. Phil asks, and a number of people, a number of commenters have said, please ask this, um, are the Taiwan economic tech consequences, presumably in the event of war in Taiwan, potentially worse than Russia's economic energy consequences? In other words, the loss of chips from Taiwan, for example, could that have a larger impact on the U.S. and world economy than even Russia using the gas weapon? Uh, I, I mean, I think so. Uh, it would certainly impact the United States more than Russia uh, turning off gas to, to Europe. I mean, the thing about the semiconductor thing, I mean, it's it's hard to overstate the current importance of Taiwan to the global semiconductor uh, supply chain. I mean, it's it's the center of gravity right now. And uh, if that were to be disrupted, particularly if decisively, that would touch gas pipelines, that would touch every aspect of the energy sector and the consumer sector and everything else. I mean, chips are the brains and everything that plugs in essentially. And so um, I do think that um, that an attack on Taiwan that, that took out the, their role in the supply chain would be worse than what we're seeing. Now, that's not in any way to say that what Russia is attempting to do to Europe isn't bad. It's very bad if, if you're in Europe. Um, but I do think that the semiconductor disruption would be even worse for even more people. So follow up, does the CHIPS Act materially help this problem? And if so, on what kind of time horizon? Yeah. 
I don't like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's not a very, that's like, no, that's, you're supposed to, that's an excellent question, David. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, whatever. Well, okay. no, 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 no. It wasn't a whatever. It was a, uh, this, I'm not happy about my answer. Um, okay. I supported, I supported chips because I thought that it gave us more influence in the global semiconductor industry than we currently had. We are beginning to actually change um, or, or influence what semiconductor manufacturers can do with their facilities in China. Before the, before the passage of chips, we did not have that level of influence. Um, that being said, it was nothing close to being a silver bullet. Um, my colleague from AI, Derek Scissors, does a really good job recently of criticizing all the ways that chips fell short. And I really couldn't disagree with any of it. Now, he was arguing that because it fell short the way it did, you know, that it was bad law and it shouldn't be passed. I take a slightly different perspective and say, no, 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 we were in such a bad position that any forward movement was worth it and that we needed to begin incrementally uh, taking these actions. Now, I hope that through executive action and through implementation, we are able to close some of the gaps that Derek raises in terms of some of the guardrails, in terms of Chinese access to some of this funding and research and that kind of thing. I think that's all necessary. But whereas Derek saw that as kind of enough to let this thing die on the vine, I saw the potential implication or the influence that we would be gaining as worth uh, making making the bet. This is just a place where you know none of this is easy and none of it's clear and reasonable people can disagree. But I, because I answered your question, the first question the way I did, that this is how big semiconductors really are. I was inclined to to support chips. Chips is a two to three to four decade solution. It's not a this decade solution. All right, Adam, you um, in your previous life working for a lesser known publication, um, you. <laughs> A niche a publication. Of, a niche publication, Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Business publication. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, we wish them well. I mean, new, struggling, we wish them well. Plus they're um, <laughs> the, you, you spent time in Ukraine. Um, as you said earlier, you've been all over the country. What we're witnessing is an act of national resistance akin to 1940 in Britain, the Battle of Britain, uh, akin to 19... 16 in France and Verdun. I mean, thankfully not at the scale of casualties, but uh, an act of national resistance of extraordinary courage nonetheless. Did you see this coming? It's funny. I um, When I, shortly after I visited Ukraine and it was April of 2019, I went to the, I went to Mariupol when it was still a livable city. We actually, I went bowling with my translator. They had a lovely <laughs> mall. It's now since destroyed. But we were also, we spent a day driving around. We went toward the, I think they call it the line of contact. And we took a tour and we, we interviewed different people. And there were Russian, Mariupol is a Russian speaking city. And the simplification was always that, oh, if you speak Russian at home, you're naturally more sympathetic to Russia. And so the Ukrainian Marines that I was, was with, you know, it was a bit of a propaganda tour. And they brought out a Russian speaking Ukrainian Marine who explained to me why he liked Ukraine. And later we were, we were in the parking lot of that shopping mall that's since been destroyed. And some guys in their, I don't know, must've been in their early mid twenties. They, they yelled at us as we were driving by. And I was like, what did they say? And I was like, ah, and, and I was like, oh, what did they say? And my, my companion said, oh, you don't want to know. It was very mean. They don't like us very much here. Right. And it's complicated, right? There are people who earnestly think that Russia is better and they would like to be part of it. Um, and a lot of those people are being dragged out of their homes in Donetsk and Luhansk and being forced to the front lines to fight and they're dying. And uh, I don't wish death upon anyone, but enjoy, you know, this is what you asked for, buddy. So a lot of the, a lot of the pro-Russian people are, are dying. Um, you know, I mean, that's mostly young men, right? And a lot of them will always be pro-Russian, but there is a Ukrainian nationalism that we could debate academically beforehand how strong it was. Uh, but I think that this is one of those moments where a lot of the people who might have been on the fence and who would have said, oh, you know, both governments are corrupt, whoever comes and gives me a bigger pension payment every month, I'll take them. I think a lot of that is going away and you're really seeing a nation forged here. And one example of the ultimate avatar of that is Volodymyr Zelensky, 
who people were very skeptical of. And you wouldn't just talk about the president wanting to do this. You'd talk about what the oligarchs think. And there would be uh, there would be um, guessing about which oligarch controlled Zelensky the most out of all the oligarchs. But we don't hear about the oligarchs anymore. Zelensky is a profoundly powerful figure. And that's something that will be interesting to see how it develops and how they're able to become a a better democracy after this, or if we'll have difficulties afterward. But I think that in terms of national identity, that's been, there were, there were questions about it before simply because it hadn't been tested, but meeting civil society groups, meeting young people in Mariupol, but also in Kyiv, wherever I was going in Ukraine, you saw the seeds of that and this war, the most horrific way to find the answer to the question came, but it seems pretty decisively answered. So uh, I got a, one point to add to that, and then a question for David. We'll turn it on to turn the tables on him. Um, I mean, Adam knows this stuff, and it's, so Adam, if you disagree with me, please just push back. But from the people I've talked to and the stuff I've read, um, one of the great. So I agree with you that there are a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians on the fence. Russia, Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, that kind of thing. Um, but Russia's de facto control of Don, Donetsk's, you know, that that slice was so unpleasant <laughs> um, that it was there was a significant teaching effect about like, you know, it's it's hard to win the hearts and minds of people to say living under Russia would be better when the parts under Russian control were worse. And um the flip side of that, I mean, the, the question I have for David is, since he, I mean, no offense to Klon, maybe uh, maybe you guys should have a military history geek off, but um, uh, I listen to the Telegraph Ukraine podcast as often as I can. It's really, yeah. really good. Yeah. And um, today they were talking about, even with grains of salt, there's reason to believe that the Russians have have deaths between 40 and 50,000 deaths. Yeah. And given that the normal rule of thumb is that the ratio is three wounded for every dead, basically the equivalent of the entire force that they initially put in is out of commission. Yeah. And 50,000 deaths, you know, is more than the deaths for all of our military adventures since Vietnam combined, essentially. And multiplied. And, combined yeah, and I mean, multiplied, like, I mean, yeah. And so like uh, with what was supposed to be one of the three or four, two or three best militaries in the world to be sustaining this kind of damage, what is the best historical analogy to <laughs> this kind of Revelation. I mean, I don't even want to say beclowning or humiliation, but it's just a revelation that the, the Russian military was not what we thought it was, even on the low end of the estimates. Well, you know, uh, if you're thinking about historical analogies, let's leave aside the casualty rate for a minute. One of the historical analogies I think about, and this is not real original to me at all, is the Winter War in Finland. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is where the Soviet Union invaded a country with far fewer people and far fewer resources than Ukraine has and absolutely faced setback after setback yeah. before it finally just exerted its will and received and, and achieved a partially successful outcome. Um, but there are a lot of, and there are a lot of historical analogies in the Russian military of inept offenses um, that, it, 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 you know, high rates of casualties in these inept defenses. But the warning is always this. The warning is always this. Every time they look really weak, when, they are, when their backs are against the wall, and when their backs are against the wall, this is a people and an army that will endure an extraordinary amount of hardship just extraordinary you know so it hitler would look at the winter war for example and say come on you know he they and then the first several weeks and months of barbarossa and say, come on we have these guys and you you go through this throughout history with with russia and 
there's a couple of things that have really stood out to me. One is the rate of casualties is so high. Let, let, let's just put this in perspective. As you were saying, it's 50,000. That's the entire entirety of American deaths in Vietnam, for example. And that's six months. And that's not, you know, when the peak of our forces in Vietnam was what, over half a million deployed? Um, this is six months of fighting with the initial invasion force was between 150 and 200,000. So the casualty rate is astronomical for the forces deployed, which is extraordinary. Number two, for a long time, they were an actual sort of violation of some basic military rules of thumb, which is that you no longer have an effective fighting force after X percentage, you know, and people right. will debate about what this 10%, 20%. But when there's a certain percentage of your force is killed, wounded, or captured, you just don't have an effective fighting force. And the Russians had sort of blown through those limits. And so some, some of the smarter folks that I was listening to were saying, wait a minute, with all the Russian ineptness, they're still fighting at extraordinary casualty rates. Which then leads to the third thing. Maybe one of the reasons for this extraordinary Ukrainian advance is sort of some of these laws of military reality just have started to catch up to them, that they really have been more hollowed out than we thought. And the lack of major mobilization combined with the fact that who are they putting forward? Um, as Adam was mentioning, they're taking people from the Donbass and just throwing them into the front lines as cannon fodder. That's not great for morale. Um, so I think, you know, what you have is something that fits a historic Russian pattern. Um, you're fighting, you're now seeing the consequences to the military forces themselves fitting sort of the laws of military reality. And then what's sort of hovering out there, which will bring me to the next thing, which is do you reach a point where sort of this other part of what Russia is kicks in, which is this this phenomenon of when the their backs are against the wall? Is there a perception of their backs are against the wall, bear any burden, take intolerable casualties, et cetera? Does something like that kick in? And and so let me let me flip around the question, Klon. We've talked a lot about what's going right. We've talked a lot about momentum. What worries you? Uh, the fracturing of the European coalition support for Ukraine is a concern. I mean, they're going to start feeling the pressure here through the winter. Uh, and while I think Ukraine has helped themselves, uh, I think that I think that could be a real problem. Uh, I also think that uh, the threat of Russian escalation, particularly as to the degree that Putin feels political pressure back home, um, whether it makes sense or not, tactically, the likelihood of, of him lashing out, I think, is is real, uh, which could thoroughly disrupt everything. Uh, and then, you know, even if everything goes well, the divergent between the, 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 the U.S. notion of the endgame and the Ukrainian notion of the endgame is always something that we're going to have to negotiate. And um, as we, as we, you know, to the degree that we get closer to an end game, end game, um, those are the kinds of things that that will matter. I'm generally optimistic, but in terms of what keeps me up on on this issue, those are the three main ones. So, Adam, we're getting a lot of questions about Putin's political standing. Um, this is rank. We're just now going to. Jonah has coined the term rank punditry. This is rank speculation. Um, A, is the idea of Putin in any real danger, anything still more than a wish or a hope? And B, is that something we should wish or hope for? Because should we presume that what follows Putin or who follows Putin won't double down uh, and, and would instead, why should we assume that whoever would follow Putin would be better than Putin or less aggressive or less willing to escalate? Right. Uh, so this will be my entry into rank Kremlinology, I guess. Uh, <laughs> rank. I like it. Right. Uh, but it's it's that's the really difficult question. Right. For now, the political pressure on Putin, one form of escalation, there's nuclear war. Right. But one would be a mass mobilization because you mm -hmm. can talk about Russia's Latin power or latent power. Right. They have 
150 million people and they're taking people from the far like from the east of north korea and throwing yeah. them into the battle right and these are not white european looking people and the russians want their boys the russian elite don't want their boys in moscow and they're probably an only son if you look at russian fertility data from the late 90s and early 2000s they don't want to throw them in so on the one hand you may have a faction of powerful people in moscow who think that this war was a bad idea, we should not have done this, and we need to find some kind of dignified way out, and we can foist Putin up, uh, hand him over to The Hague, and move on from this. Those people certainly exist. I'm not sure they have the guns. Maybe they do. <laughs> there, could be, there could be someone in Moscow, in, in the general staff, harboring these revolutionary thoughts uh, that we don't know about, but that's the thing we don't know. From the other direction, it could be no, we need to. We do need a mass mobilization. Putin, Putin needs to start stop joking around about this and force people, conscript them, put anyone who doesn't in the gulag, and finish this war, right? And those are perhaps the two directions he could be facing pressure from. Um, and it's not just him, right? There's a small circle around him. His defense minister, uh, Petrushev, who I think is in charge of the Security Council is the name, people like that who would probably go with Putin. But it's so opaque. Um, the only comparable level of opaqueness might be Xi Jinping's inner circle, right, in, inside of Beijing, where we don't really know who makes who makes decisions outside of there or who he trusts. But that that's the big question. So I'm not comfortable saying oh, Putin's going to go, or this will be the end of Putin, or that should be an objective for us. Because I would say this, if I woke up tomorrow morning and Putin was hanging from a flagpole in Moscow, of course I would be shocked, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility, but I wouldn't count on it at all, right? And if he lived for, like, what is he, 70 now? If he lived for another 15 years and died peacefully in the Kremlin, I also wouldn't be surprised. It's and I know that's not a very satisfying answer when you can go on Twitter and find people saying, oh, the walls are finally closing in on Putin. But that's, I think, the most intellectually honest one is that we don't know. And anyone who says they do or they have insight is probably not as uh, knowledgeable as they yeah. do. And I think it's an important point to add to that. If we woke up tomorrow morning, I was just talking to Jim Garrity about this. Like, I think it is morally obvious that Russia deserves to be humiliated for what it's done here. I'm just not sure it's in our national interest for it to be humiliated. And similarly, if tomorrow Putin, you know, let's let's do the full Mussolini and say he was hung by his feet instead of his neck. But uh, if we woke up tomorrow and said that it saw that Putin was hanging from a flagpole, there are a few people alive more deserving of that fate. That doesn't mean that Russia goes in a good direction tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Right. It could be that Russia goes in a much worse direction because the loudest voices in Russia right now are not liberals. They're all they've all gone to ground or or left the country. It's the hardcore nationalists who think that they're screwing the pooch and that they aren't they're not tough enough. And it's entirely possible that those are the people who depose Putin and not the, you know, the good Western oriented mm -hmm. liberals and I don't know how to game any of that stuff out. And I don't know a lot of people who do. And one, one point on this is Navalny, who's made this heroic decision to go to prison. He was interviewed a few years ago and he said, yeah, I guess if I was in charge of Russia, I can't ever really see a scenario where I would give Crimea back. Mm, right. so even the most Western oriented liberals in Russia are still on the Russian curve of what to do about Ukraine. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying Navalny supported the war or anything like that, but there are just limits to what anyone in Russia could do to move the country in what we would consider to be a better direction. Gorbachev was in favor of taking back Crimea, you know, despite all the toasts upon his death. All right. Well, it is nine o'clock, eight o'clock in central time, the ideal time zone. Um, so I, I had other questions, but we'll we'll table them for another time. Really appreciate it. Clon, Adam, Jonah, thanks so much. And I guess I'm going to see all you guys in person. We're going to have a a glorious dispatch retreat yeah. uh, here over the next few days. So that's that's going to be fantastic. Well, anyway, thank you, um, members, uh, for watching. 
Uh, thank you so much for your support. Uh, we're having our dispatch retreat coming up on our three-year anniversary, which um, that's pretty remarkable. And it's been three really wonderful years so far. And we owe it to uh, you guys who are watching. And you guys who are watching are among our most uh, dedicated and, and members, and you're our ambassadors uh, to, to many other people. So thank you for spreading the word about the dispatch. Uh, thank you for watching, and uh, we'll be back next week. So the question is,